Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking to Jessica Watkins about her new book, Creating Consent in an Illiberal Order, Policing Disputes in Jordan. Then we turn to another chapter in our edited volume, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, with a conversation with Killian Clark and Chantal Berman about their chapter on protests. Finally, we talk to Jeannie Sowers at University of New Hampshire about the upcoming COP27, the climate change uh, conference that's to be held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And we talk about environmental politics in Egypt and uh, some of the issues that are going to uh, be raised in the COP conference. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Jessica Watkins. She's a research associate at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies and a visiting research fellow at the LSE's Middle East Center. She's the author of the new book, Creating Consent in an Illiberal Order, Policing Disputes in Jordan, uh, just published by Cambridge. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, What led you to write it and what do you see as the major contribution? Um, So I think there were really two uh, main sources of inspiration. Um, Firstly, in the scholarship on the Middle East, we often hear about Arab states described as police states uh, in a negative sense that uh, generally refers to high levels of surveillance of citizens and restriction of civil liberties. Um, But in fact, we very rarely hear about police institutions themselves. Um, And when we do, the focus is more on their role in repressing citizens than it is on any of their other more mundane activities that are related to dealing with common crimes and disputes. Uh, So I definitely saw a gap in the literature. And just to go back a bit, the reason I specifically wanted to fill the gap was actually due to um, my experience with the police in a very different context in the Middle East. Um, So in the early 2000s, I worked as a civilian translator with the British Army in Iraq. And at the time, the Iraqi police force was being reconstructed after the regime change. And pretty much from the get-go, the new police force was heavily politicized. Um, So large sections of the police were dominated by uh, affiliates of some of the Shia Islamist factions, political factions, um, and paramilitary groups. Um, And during the sectarian interstate conflict um, between 2005 and 2008, elements of the police really became protagonists in the violence uh, rather than arbiters. So there was very little trust in the police as an institution. And as a result, they had a very limited role in managing crimes between citizens, what I call um, interpersonal disputes in the book. Um, And instead, those kinds of offences were dealt with societal figures from tribal networks or religious associations. Um, And it got me thinking, where in the Middle East do the police actually have a meaningful role in in managing these types of disputes? Um, But still, there is a role for societal figures such as as tribal figures. Um, And Jordan was hands down the winning candidate in that respect. So that was really the main inspiration. Um, I think the the contributions, I see three main contributions for the book. Um, The first one, as far as I know, is that this is... uh, by far the most detailed study of the Jordanian Public Security Directorate, um, the police or the the PSD, uh, and specifically the civil police. So it's not about the Khabarat or the army. And I look at how police functions were performed from 
the Transjordan, sorry, how police functions were performed in Transjordan since the Ottoman period, um, how they transformed under the British mandate uh, with the Arab Legion, how the PSD became progressively more institutionalized um, and specialized since its separation from the army, uh, that was in 1956, and then its separation from the General Intelligence Directorate um, and its incorporation of women. Um, and then there was a separation of the gendarmerie from the rest of the PSD as well in 2008 till 2019. So, and then the key focus of the research is really on the PSD in the, in the past 20 years. Um, and then just briefly, the other two contributions are that um, rather than being concerned with how the police deal with crimes against the state, um, so high policing is a term by Jean-Paul Bradeur, as the police instead looks at in, in some detail at the significance of low policing. Um, and by that, I mean, how do they manage crimes and disputes that, that are committed by citizens against other citizens? Um, so things like common assault, uh, verbal abuse, traffic accidents, domestic abuse, uh, even murder. Um, and that's not because I underestimate the significance of their more repressive functions. But I think that by looking at these forms of low policing, we get different insights about the nature of the state and how social order is constructed from above, but also from below. Um, and then the last contribution I'd say is that the book really does celebrate interdisciplinarity. Um, so it is a political science book, and I draw quite heavily on a Gramscian theory to explain the police role in creating order. Um, but the research also draws on legal anthropology uh, and critical police studies, um, international relations. Um, and partly that's because I think policing naturally draws in those disciplines. But also it's because I'm interested in this intersection of the, the top down and the bottom up and the way that social order, even in a non-democratic uh, context, is produced from above and below. Um, and, uh, and I look at the way that not only the, the state in form of the police, but also societal figures and organizations such as tribal networks and uh, civil society organizations are also involved in, in policing these crimes. So that's really, I'd say, the, the main contributions. On, on that last point, it, it's very interesting. It, it, it's in line with a, a recent work in a number of contexts on kind of the anthropo anthropology of the state and kind of how citizens experience the state kind of in a routine, everyday way. Um, and you know, so when, when you think about that, tell us a little bit more about the civil police and the institutions that you're actually looking at, because you're right, we tend to think about the Muhabarat or the Dabak, the, you know, the, the, the protest police and things like that. And the literature, not just in Jordan, but everywhere, tends to ignore these types of police. So tell us what you observed. Who are these people? What are they doing? How are they organized? Um, so, yeah, so the main focus of the book is on the Public Security Directorate. Um, and uh, I think in much of the region, there tends to be a focus on um, the military or the Mahabharats to the extent that it's possible to, to look at those agencies. But there's much more interest in them because they're considered to be a much more involved in the, in the political aspects of uh, surveillance and repression. Um, but my argument is that really, although looking at low policing and the, and the things that the, the civil police do may not be on the face of it uh, political. In fact, the, um, the way in which they impose order is very political and it underlies the state's authority. Um, 
So in Jordan, uh, I mean, I'm aware that in parts of the region, the separation between different security forces is much uh, more ambiguous. Um, but in Jordan, I think that part of the story of the, the PSD is that it was separated from the army in the, in the 1950s um, and then from the general intelligence directorate or the Mukhabarats in the, the 1960s um, and then even from the gendarmerie or the Darak in, uh, in 2009. And that was a temporary uh, separation and actually it's quite interesting to uh, revisit what implications that might have that now that the two forces have been uh, rejoined and whether that signifies a kind of return to more, more militant policing, which uh, the book doesn't really look into because I wasn't covering that that time scale. But um, yeah, I think that uh, the, the civil police are vastly overlooked in the region as a whole and in Jordan it was possible to study them, which made it an optimal site for, for this mm -hmm. research. And the, one of the issues that always arises with policing is that what they're policing are things which are deemed criminal. And you have some discussion in the book about these definitions of criminality and what it is that it's legitimate or that it's you know appropriate for the police to intervene in and what it's not appropriate for them to intervene in. So tell us a little bit about how that changes over time and kind of what you observed uh, in your research. Um, yes, thank you, good question. So, um... I look at it in terms of, um, I separate the, I mean, I kind of categorize the, the ways or the strategies um, through which the police uh, intervene in, in uh, common offenses. And, uh, and I make the point that often things that could be treated as crimes um, are not necessarily, and it depends on the, uh, the parties involved. So. In some cases, like murder, it has to go through a state process and through the courts. But often, if the, the parties involved do not want to take it through the courts, then the issue can be dealt with privately. And the police in Jordan are very aware of that. And it is very much part of the tradition of, um, instead of the focus really being on enforcing the law, it's on enforcing social order. And those two things are not always the same. So uh, often we see that instead of taking um, cases of common assault to the courts, the parties involved prefer to take, uh, have a private um, settlement through a, a tribal dispute mechanism. And the police uh, support that, in fact. Um, they, uh, they support the, the, the kind of traditions and practices that go alongside that. Um, and, and that's quite uh, distinctive of the way that they operate um, in that sphere. Then at, um, if you take that to kind of the farthest extreme, you get into issues like honor killings and um, blood debts and things like that, which kind of are at that liminal space uh, between what it, where, where the state and the tribe uh, system uh, intersect. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like a, the line is not always um, as clear as the Jordanian state would like it to be. I mean, that they, certainly that the police are, are, their role is as arbiters of disputes. There have been occasions, especially in the last few decades where uh, tribal disputes have uh, been overblown, that the police have actually become party to that. And that is, uh, that, that's clearly not the role that, that the regime or the police uh, want to assume. But in part that comes from the tradition, the way that the, the PSD in Jordan developed, 
and in the early years um certainly the uh the dominating um the higher levels of the psd were and still are dominated by um east bankers who came from um some of the more prominent tribes so they're very familiar with policing um according to tribal dispute resolution mechanisms and sometimes that has involved them becoming party to those disputes as well and this whole intersection with the tribal justice system is just fascinating <laughs> yeah and i mean that i mean i i found it incredibly incredibly fascinating and i wanted to draw to, to kind of I was very aware that I didn't want to create the impression of Jordan being like a primordial state. And, and I of think there's course, a danger yeah. when you start talking about tribal justice that um, that you're kind of describing the state in, in very like primitive terms. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, I think that the fact that elements of tribal identity have survived is actually a reaction to much more modern um, recent developments and actually um, so some of the turn towards neoliberalism um, in economic policy has the kind of unexpected result has actually been to push the population back towards um, resorting to kinship networks in various spheres in the justice sphere and also in um, mutual kinship um, associations uh, and I, I think that's that's like it's a form of neo-tribalism that is very much a part and parcel of the state today. In terms of uh, what that means for kind of equality before the law or be, or this idea of the administrative bureaucratic state, um, you, you don't really describe this as these being holes in the state so much as this more integrated uh, connection between the state and social order. Uh, yes, I mean, again, there's the balance to be struck. And what I'm trying to trace through looking at these different forms of uh, policing these offenses or disputes as the case may be, is the the way that in some cases, it the creation or, or imposition of social order is much more of a negotiative process or a give and take process between the, the, the apparatus of the state and elements of society. And what I want to bring across is that even, I mean, it's not a particular to a democratic state that we can have a form of consensual policing mm -hmm. that takes place, that kind of materializes um, in some senses through imposing or like relying on norms that are already present in society. So I think that the, the tribal customs are something that are very prevalent in Jordan and have been for a long time. But in other senses, the police have also relied on other strategies in order to kind of bring about consent. And it's a process, a gradual process, as opposed to a kind of binary between coercion and consent. Um, and the book really looks into how these different strategies amount to producing consent and how at the same time there is societal pushback. Um, yeah. So you know, to this point, we've been mostly speaking about this in an abstract way, but of course the book, what, what really stands out is this detailed ethnography of, the, of policing and the relationship between the police and society. So tell us some stories. Uh, you, 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 start the, you start the book with four anecdotes, um, kind of to frame it, and then throughout the chapters, there's a lot of rich examples of the sorts of things we've been talking about. So what are some of your favorite um, kind of episodes of policing which informed the way you start to think about this stuff? 
Um, so you're absolutely right that really what I love about the research is, um, I mean, I have to caveat this with, I'm not an anthropologist and I, um, so I rely, my uh, research very heavily relies on qualitative uh, interviewing, which is ethnographically, ethnographically informed. So I try to look at um, incidences of disputes or crimes from uh, multiple perspectives. So the perspective of, uh, of witnesses, of perpetrators, of victims, and of the, the, the arbiters, whether they're the state arbiters in the form of the police um, or the provincial, the, the government authorities, or whether they're the non-state civil society actors and tribal networks. So I tried to piece together like how the processes of dispute management um, occurred. And I, um, so I don't, I don't pretend to, you know, an, a real anthropologist would have, would have sat, <laughs> sat there for, for years and observed at very close quarters uh, exactly how things played out. And unfortunately, I, I mean, that just wasn't at my disposal, but I really rely on people's own accounts of how they, um, what they saw the problem, what to be, and how it played out and how it was resolved or not resolved, because a lot of the cases that I look at um, weren't resolved. So as well as the uh, the interviewing aspect of the, the research, I mean, it really is mixed methods, and I relied quite a lot on um, materials that were produced by the PSD itself. So in-house magazines, um, which uh, the PSD has been issuing for uh, several decades, um, as well as um, statements or speeches by the, the royal family and the public security directorate staff themselves um, and uh, NGO uh, documents and uh, government statistic uh, websites, because actually Jordan is quite forthcoming with statistics on crime in a way that other parts of the region are not, um, with some caveats. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because it does kind of point to, you know, maybe one of the reasons that we don't see very many studies of the police is that it's very hard to do that in much of the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, yes, and I, and I recognize that. So one of the things that I want the reader to take away from the, the study is that this way of looking at policing common disputes is a kind of lens that we can use not in Jordan, but in other contexts as well. But I do recognize that in terms of actual access to police practice, um, Jordan was quite uh, unusual compared to some other parts of the region. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very lucky in the access that I got and uh, the permissions I got to, to run interviews within the, the, the PSD. Now, one of the things which is really interesting that you also flagged at the beginning and when you were talking about the major contributions is the historical evolution of the of the policing institution and i found it very interesting the way it, its origins in in military violence um and then its evolution into this kind of independent civil policing and walk us through that a little bit what that is it is as you mentioned a somewhat unusual institutional decision and do you have any sense of why that happened and what the effects were yeah, well, just to go back in terms of the the history of the of the PSD, I mean, the police, um, broadly speaking, have a very formative role in the creation of the the state of Jordan. Um, so, the police, as an institution, uh, started out as the Arab Legion, uh, which was established under the command of uh, Frederick Peake in uh, 1923 as part of the, the British Mandate. 
Um, and then subsequently from 1939 to 56, I think the, yeah, the, the Legion was famously commanded by John Bagot Club, who was instrumental in recruiting um, Bedouin uh, tribesmen into the Legion. Um, and the Legion from the start was divided into combat oriented and civil policing oriented units. But essentially, it was initially primarily uh, an internal security uh, unit, um, whereas border security was um, the domain of the Transjordanian Frontier Force. Um, and for the first 20 years, the, the Arab Legion was primarily concerned with um, controlling or suppressing um, tribal revolts within Jordan. And that was a big part of the story in how the state came together. Um, by the Second World War, the Arab Legion played uh, a combat role in Iraq and Syria, and then it played a combat role in the uh, First Arab-Israeli War. Um, and then subsequently, uh, the, the Public Security Directorate, as it is today, was created in 1956, and it was separated from the army, um, and then it was permanently separated from the army in 1958. Um, and I think like, so as uh, most, I think police, I think it's fair to say most police forces in the region have this military past, and it certainly still shows through in the in the kind of character of the PSD to get the day, um, both in terms of the rank system, which is still military, um, and the fact that the majority of the commanders of the PSD are drawn from the army. Um, it, it has kind of retained this, um, link with the army but in other senses it has kind of made a conscious effort the, the directorate has made a very conscious effort to separate itself and to create this image of being uh, a servant police service as opposed to a police force mm -hmm. um and i think that the separation of the the gendarmerie which happened um was potentially part of this drive to really um separate the PSD and uh in the in the imaginary of the population and, and make them be associated with a more consensual role well, that's really interesting so you know you you get to that point of the separation out of of those institutions and that kind of leads into the final two chapters in the book where you start talking about protest and the policing of protest as well as uh, the refugees who are coming in and they're not part of this established social order. Um, so what did you see happening with, in terms of the role of civil police once uh, you know, the Arab Spring breaks out and large scale protests are starting to begin? How do the police respond to that? Um, so when I started, I think it's important to say, like when I started the research for this book, it was actually just before the Arab Spring, um, Arab uprisings uh, kicked off. And at the time, you know, the, the idea of the region was quite different. And the main research focus was really on um, authoritarian resilience and stagnation and explaining how that happened. But I think there was a kind of complacency about that our regimes were resilient and um obviously the past 10 years have, have done a lot to disprove that theory and now there is much more of a recognized need to focus in on what are the elements of that that do contribute to um regime survival so in the jordanian case jordan is largely described as having survived the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings and obviously it hasn't been left unscathed um by any means but um, 
it is important, I think, to take a look at the role that the, that the PSD played in um, through the, the course of the last 10 years and the fact that um, there's been relatively little recourse to repression. Um, and in fact, the repression that has taken place is more by the John Darmory than the rest of the, the PSD. Um, I, I think that's, that, that is uh, an important factor in explaining re regime survival and regime um, resilience. So the book is not focused on the protest movement. And I know there's like an yeah. excellent book which has come out this year that looks specifically at protesting. Um, but still like police reactions to protesting, although we're talking about contentious politics, it's like low politics, but the police response is still high policing because it's a form of uh, policing threats or perceived threats against the state. And that's not like the focus of, of this book. And actually, if you think about the majority of the population don't protest. They don't participate in protests. The silent major majority uh, might share some, a lot of the sentiments, but um, they are at the same time uh, still subject to policing. And whether they want to or not, if they become involved in one of these types of common disputes, then um, the role that the police plays um, is significant in deciding kind of the, the eventual outcome. Um, so yes, and, and, it, and it kind of the... it kind of establishes, you know, this question of criminality. If someone is blocking traffic, is that a crime or is that a permissible act of political dissent? If people are marching through downtown and disrupting businesses, is that a crime to be policed or is it not? Seems like they're very interesting questions about uh, you kind of go to that, that your book raises. Yeah, I, I mean, and yes, and also actually you touched upon the fact that the kind of the the line between low policing and high policing is not always that clear because so if I'm saying I'm concentrating primarily on crimes committed by citizens against citizens, sometimes these uh, are overboil and they become the subject of high policing. They 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 draw in the state. So I'm not denying that 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 the two are kind of intertwined at some level. But in terms of the, the basic response, um, yes, I think we have some a lot to learn from uh, police practice, and that's fair. And then what about refugees? I guess last question. Um, and uh, what the, what role the civil police play in terms of uh, the presence of refugees in the kingdom? Um, so Jordan has played a kind of famously hospitable role to 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 refugees, not always. Um, willingly, I mean, with a lot of pressure from the international community and uh, Jordan's um, role as a host country for refugees is is really one of the primary um, states of, uh, of international interest in Jordan, especially from the EU, maybe not so much the states, um, but uh, European countries really need Jordan or say that they need Jordan to, to host the refugee community. And as a result, they have, uh, this has been one of the bases for uh, international um, support and um, aid to Jordan um, in the aftermath of the, the war in Iraq and also Syria more recently. Um, so in the book, the main uh, kind of outlet that I look at the effects of the refugee population is in the final chapter. Um, I have a, a chapter on community policing and what that means in the Jordanian context. Um, and I look at you know the the differences in the way that the West might perceive community policing from the way that uh, Jordanian police officers themselves do, and how they've uh, construed it within the PSC historically. 
Um, but then I specifically look at the post-2011 period and the way that um, community policing has been one of the strategies of response to the refugee crisis. And initially that started in, uh, in the camps. So there was quite a successful community policing initiative run in a Zatari uh, camp that was supported um, by the UK. Uh, and uh, I think one of the main reasons that it was successful was because um, this model of community policing that relying on uh, police uh, public partnerships really worked in the context of the camps where civil society organizations were quite active in the same way as they are in the West. So obviously the context is different, but those actors still were able to play a cooperative role with the police. Whereas when it was expanded more to outside of the camps, which it has been in the in the last like uh, five or so years, um, it's been a lot more problematic and difficulties have arisen from the fact that um, these kind of autonomous civil society actors just don't exist in the same way. Um, and the actors that are kind of selected as part of the public to cooperate with the police are actually um, kind of acting under the behest of the of the regime or a lot of civil society is controlled by the regime. So there isn't the same kind of balance that we might think of in, in uh, liberal democratic style um, community policing initiatives. Um, and I think that the, the fact that in the broader community, the, the refugee population are a minority, but a very, um, you know, their effect has been, it has put enormous tension on um, daily life in Jordan. Um, so what community policing is supposed to achieve is really, has really proven quite uh, difficult. We've been speaking with uh, Jessica Watkins about her new book, uh, uh, Creating Consent in an Illiberal Order, about policing in Jordan. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. <laughs> the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and all fall we've been talking with, with the authors of chapters of books in the edited volume of the Political Science of the Middle East, which was done by myself, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Yom. And on today's podcast, we're joined by Chantal Berman and Killian Clark, who, along with Jillian Schwedler and Nermeen Alam, were the authors of the chapter Between Two Uprisings, the study of protest in the Middle East, 2010 to 2020. Uh, Killian, Chantal, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we get started with just, um, you know, kind of general, give us a sense of how the field of Middle East political science dealt with this astonishing eruption of protest in 2011 and, you know, kind of what the field managed to do with that. Uh, Killian, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast and happy to be here talking about this chapter. Um, this was a really fun chapter to work on for the four of us. Um, it was a difficult chapter um, because you know, essentially what happened with the scholarship on protest and mobilization and social movements is, is there was just this, this, this kind of explosion, right? This proliferation of, of work on these topics that, you know, not surprisingly was catalyzed by the 2011 Arab uprisings. Um, and so the title of our chapter uh, between two uprisings, um, we, we put that out there to sort of uh, think about um, the, the scholarship that basically came after 2011 and up to and until and sort of just the beginning of this this recent wave of Arab uprisings in 2019 in um, Iraq, Lebanon, 
Algeria and Sudan, which kind of some are calling a second Arab Spring or a second wave of uprisings. And so we were really focused on, you know, what did we learn um, during the ensuing sort of, uh, you know, decade or so between these two mass mobilization events. Um, and and so the way we, we, we structure the chapter and, and think about organizing this really, again, this sort of massive scholarship um, is, is we start off by just reviewing a bunch of the different contributions and lessons that came out of study of the Arab uprisings. And then the, the, you know, the final two thirds of the chapter is really supposed to be a little bit more provocative and thinking about new directions for scholarship, the beginnings of new uh, research agendas that emerged um, out of, out of uh, this research. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if we think about the scholarship on the uprisings itself, the way we talk about it is, is sort of in terms of almost many generations that, you know, at first, after these uprisings occurred, scholars really, you know, didn't know what to make of them. We didn't even know what questions to ask, right? We talk about how, you know, we didn't even know how to, we talk about casing things in political science, right? What is this a case of? And we didn't even know how to, what to call these things. Were they revolutions? Were they uprisings? Were they revolutions, right? To use a term that Asif Bayat has put forward in some of his work. Um, and so a lot of the early scholarship was very descriptive. Um, interestingly, a lot of the early pieces that were written were actually not written by Middle East political scientists. They were written by generalists who were trying to use the Arab Spring as an opportunity to theorize about more general um, topics and, and sort of to test existing theories and democratization, social movements, et cetera. Um, and then, but then Middle East political science began to engage a little bit more. We actually get started to get some original research based on original field work and interviews. Um, a lot of folks, including, of course, uh, Chantal and myself, worked with uh, protest data sets, which became a very uh, popular way of studying these uprisings. Um, and as we got started to get more empirical research, you know, we found that that scholars were really pushing these research agendas uh, forward in interesting directions. Um, and some of these were uh, pieces of research tackling kind of classic questions in the social movements and mobilization scholarship, you know, questions around why do people join protests, right? Um, how are revolutionary coalitions formed and constituted, right? What is the role of social media, right? And how has that changed the way mobilization work, right? That was obviously a huge topic coming out of the, uh, the Arab uprisings. Um, and, then, and then new questions, right, that really were being uh, raised by these uprisings that hadn't been central to the social movements and revolution scholarship up until then. So questions about how identity figures in, right? Sectarian identity, for example. So there's some fascinating work that folks like Lisa Wadeen and Kevin Mazur and Wendy Perlman have done on Syria, thinking about the role of sect and sectarian boundaries and how that affects revolutionary mobilization. We also had studies looking at the role of religion in, in these processes. So, so not just tackling old questions with new cases and data, but also expanding these questions into new areas that hadn't been really central to these fields up until that point. Now, Chantal, as you began studying, or you collectively as a field, uh, began studying these things, there's a lot of questions that come up. And so I guess, I guess the first is trying to make sense of the types of protests that we saw and why and when we saw them. Tell us a little bit about what the literature has told us about those questions. Sure. Uh, so first off, thank you so much, Mark, for uh, having Killian and I on. Um, you know, def conversation definitely misses Nermeen and um, Jill, and it's great to see the book getting um, so much traction. And so I think building off of um, 
what Killian was saying about our sort of sequential approach to understanding these sort of mini generations of, of, of theory and substance in the study of mobilization since the 2011 uprisings. You know, I think one of these sort of junctures that we as a team identified was, you know, this shift coming out of the uprisings from really thinking about protests and mobilization as moments of rupture, right, moments in the suspension of normal politics, normal economics, um, towards um, sort of a normalization, to use a weird word, of, of protest, right? And so an understanding of protest that's really incorporating mobilization, strikes, sit-ins, uh, different kinds of actions, as a set of mechanisms or a set of relations um, that are much more embedded within the political and social systems of which they are a part, right? And so as we shifted from this sort of, you know, focus on these, you know, what are called in, in some of the social movements literature, great events, right? These historic ruptures, um, which, which deserve scholarship in their own right, right? As Killian is saying, these are historic events. These are in many cases, unprecedented levels of mobilization, at least in the prior decade, uh, but they're far from the only ways in which collective actions sort of impinge upon the political process, right? And so this shift kind of opened up, I think in the field, really a number of expansions, right? So one is an expansion and Killian had mentioned some of this in, the types of actors that we're considering as protest actors or collective actors. Another one is an expansion in the types of claims that we're thinking about, right? So there's been, I think, a lot of tremendous work done on socioeconomic claims and the meanings of socioeconomic claims from the point of view of subsistence, welfare, um, social policy, retrenchment, labor markets, etc. There have been, I think, focus on particular social actors, right? So a lot of great work being done on the emergence of the unemployed graduates, right? For example, as a set of movements um, in the North African context. And um, I think a, a, also a, a sort of very intense focus on theorizing the routineness of, of certain protests and demonstrations, right? So why would, you know, people spend their time and energy and showing up to a protest that they don't expect to be transformative, right, in, in, in some kind of drastic way. Um, so Jill Schwedler has done a lot of great work on this. Um, you know, uh, scholars like Yusuf Ashesli has focused on this really micro-level question of how do protests kind of transform the individual, right? What are the lives of activists coming out of their participants' participation in events? And so I think along with this focus on sort of new actors and new claims, and we've also had this interest in, in sort of new scales of impact, right? And new understandings of the ways in which protests can really shape actors, right? From, from individuals, through movements, through political parties. Um, so whereas I think, you know, some of the earlier generation of uprising focused um, scholarship, as Killian mentioned, really had this kind of cross-country focus, right? And we understand where that comes from, right? It's you know, why were heads of state deposed in Tunisia and Egypt, for example, but not in Morocco and not in Jordan? Um, and really sort of running with this idea that the kinds of transformations that result from, from protests um, can, can really vary in terms of impact and scale and the nature of, of change, right? And so I think there's just been a, a really explosion of, of really great theoretical work and um, field work, right? Like really close empirical work on those questions. Uh, Killian, you know, let's go back to uh, to you for a moment. Um, you know, this involves thinking differently about what protests are and what they achieve and kind of what actually counts as an outcome. And that was one of the, the ideas behind doing this book was that 10 years of perspective allows us to kind of rethink what actually happened. 
because of these protests and and, and the like. And if you, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that. And also, um, maybe you could also talk about something you you hinted at in your first comment, which was about the new methodologies and especially this use of uh, event data uh, uh, data sets. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit as well in terms of how that's uh, shaped the field. Yeah, sure. Yeah, happy to talk about both of those things. And of course, they're they're related because we've actually also been using protest data to, to study outcomes um, in interesting ways. Um, but yeah, so on the well, I'll, I'll answer the second question first. Um, so the 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 use of protest data, um, protest event catalogs, as we call them, because um, they're you know they're basically inventories of protests is the way these data sets are structured. This has a long uh, ped pedigree in sociology and political science. Um, but it hadn't actually been done very much in the MENA context until um, until the Arab uprisings, until 2011. Um, and now it's, it's, it's become a very common method of, of studying certainly protest mobilization, but also, you know, using protest data to study all kinds of different things, to study sectarianism, right, to study political violence, to study legacies of violence, um, to study public opinion. Um, so people are using these uh, data sets to, to study all kinds of things. And, um, you know, both uh, Chantal and I have a lot of experience working with these data sets. We, we worked with these uh, for our, our, our dissertations and for the books that we're currently writing. Um, and one of the things they really allow you to do is just do these amazing descriptive sort of analyses and, and, and show the arc of a protest movement or a revolutionary movement over, over the full sort of cycle of mobilization um, and really gets a very rich, rich texture uh, sort of textual account of, of what happened, who was engaging in protests, where these were taking place, what kind of claims were being made. And I think one of the main methodological um, contributions the scholarship made was, was, was that these protest data sets were built using local language sources. They were built using Arabic language newspapers. Um, and so the data sets are really rich. They have a lot of events and they're able to um, really document mobilization at a, at a fine level of, of geographical and temporal detail. Um, and, you know, a lot of the other data sets that, that cover protests, you know, that are sort of being used in scholarship are based on English language sources, and those are actually not very good. And so um, we've been able to tell a really rich picture of, of, of what happened during 2011 and afterwards with these local language um, data sets that, um, that, again, have become pretty common. And I think that's a, that's a critical uh, change within the field using the local the the Arabic language stuff and the local coverage. And uh, Chantal, like with your work, then for example, being able to really code things like strikes and labor activism and local factory things as part of this instead of defining them away. Yeah, certainly. So I think um, so. So so one of the benefits, and and, and as Killian has touched on, right, of of sort of collecting these types of event catalogs, right? And sort of not delimiting them ex ante according to, okay, I'm interested in studying, you know, a certain movement or protests that are created by a certain organization, right? That's definitely one technique and it has its benefits. Um, but one of the, the sort of sort of serendipitous processes of, of sort of creating these inductive data sets is, is the ability to really learn things about protest landscapes through that process of aggregation, right? So one of the things that you know, we can see looking through uh, some of the data sets is that, you know, 
most of the protests that take place in uh, you know many of the countries that we study are extremely small, right? So we have this like huge population of protests that are including you know from one or two people up to fifteen or twenty people, oftentimes you know taking place in rural areas, protests that are taking place in smaller cities and towns, as well as like you know in in the downtown areas, um, protests that are focused on you know sort of smaller pro provisional or infrastructural issues, protests that are you know, disorganized, right, in the sense in which we often understand social movement organizations as these kind of named, almost kind of like lobby-esque groups, right, and a lot of that is not what we actually see when we look at the protest data sets, right, and so it provides this kind of, you know, I, I think this impetus to look into types of protests which are not, you know, the, the sort of most headlining types of protests, right, and to think about the political work those protests are doing, um, and to also think about, you know, I think there's this tendency within the social movements literature sometimes to sometimes to you know just kind of shift away these these like smaller events right or these sort of non-transgressive events right we have a tradition within that protest event analysis that says you know who cares about small protests right it's all about these larger demonstrations um but these are these are really valuable and i think they intersect with a lot of questions that are are really sort of at the forefront of innovation in middle east politics field right now including the focus on local politics the focus on you know governance the focus on on thinking about governance and questions of scale um so i just i think that there's a lot that we can do both sort of with the descriptive analysis of these event catalogs and killian has mentioned um and also to think about, you know, using these kinds of inductive data sets as ways to case or to think about approaching questions through fieldwork or through archival work um, that can really sort of be guided by this kind of like broader contextual picture of what the protest landscape um, is looking like in any in any given case. Um, and of course, that's subject, you know, to a whole bunch of really interesting biases that come with using news sources that have their own you know, configurations, newsroom organizations, political leanings, perhaps. Um, I know that's something that Killian has has explored a lot in his own methodological writing. Um, and I think it's something that we continue to to sort of think about and, and to, to try and enrich um, this scholarship with. Great. Um, back to Killian on this question of outcomes and, and what does it mean to think about outcomes in the context of these ongoing protest movements? Yeah. Yeah, so well, you know, one of the things we write about in the chapter, um, and again, this this touches back onto sort of broader um, theoretical um, concerns within social movements and mobilization studies. You know, the scholarship on these topics is really focused on origins. You know, why does why do social movements emerge? Why do protests emerge? Why do people join protests? Um, and you know, historically in the scholarship, there has been much less research on what kinds of outcomes and effects um, these protests and social movements bring about. Um, and so one of the really interesting ways in which the uh, scholarship uh, after the Arab uprisings has moved these fields forward is in thinking about outcomes um, in different forms and the effects of protests in different ways. And of course, part of this came from the obvious question of, you know, well, we have these, you know, four or five uprisings and the trajectories after these uprisings were very different. And so we should be thinking about varied outcomes. And, you know, in, in some cases we have democratization, in some cases we have counter-revolution, in some cases we have state collapse. So that was sort of one you know, obvious way in which outcomes and effects merge to the forefront of people's research agendas. But then there's all kinds of other ways in which people have been writing about and thinking about the outcomes of protests that kind of touch on a little bit of what Chantal was talking about. You know, thinking about even, even when you have cases of movements or protests or revolutions that quote unquote fail, right? Or seem to not achieve the 
goals that they set out to that they can actually have all kinds of really interesting long-term effects that we have research on the long-term biographical impacts of participating in revolutions, right? And how even if that may not bring about social change that's desired, the experience of doing that can change people's identities and subjects in really meaningful ways and can turn them into types of citizens and subjects that um, that, that that have long-term impacts, right? Um, Adria Lawrence has done some really re interesting research on these topics. Um, we have interesting research on the effects of protest on public opinion, right? And how that shifts in public opinion can be tied to levels of mobilization. Um, another really interesting current in the scholarship, um, which I've written a little about, um, Rima Majid has also written on this topic, is there's this assumption or this sort of um, bias in, in the scholarship on protest that, that protests are always progressive, that they're always this sort of unalloyed movement for uh, positive change. And one of the things we found, especially in the aftermath of the, of the Arab uprisings, is that there were a lot of protests and mobilizations for, um, for reactionary purposes, right? For, for counter-revolution, right? One of the main um, uh, factors that facilitated the return of the Fatah al-Sisi in Egypt was a series of very robust counter-revolutionary protests that created the conditions for the military coup. Um, Rima Majid has done some interesting work on the role of protest and mobilization in facilitating and fomenting and hardening sectarian bounds, right? So protests are not just things that bring about emancipation and liberation, right? In some cases, they can actually entrench authoritarianism. They can entrench sectarianism. Um, Jillian Schwedler has also done some excellent work in her new book on the role of protest in actually cementing the rule of the Hashemite uh, regime in Jordan. Um, and the way it reinforces state power in certain contexts. So when we think about outcomes and effects, we have to be open-minded about it, right? And we can't just assume that the role of these protests is always going to be uh, a sort of a, 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 a lessening of authoritarian or state power. Well, let's then move from there to uh, maybe one last question back to Chantal, is that the chapter also highlights a number of kind of new approaches and new thematics um, that uh, that this that this the field's been working through. So tell us a little bit about these novel um, approaches and theoretical ideas that we've been engaging with. Sure. So um, one of the, the sort of newer uh, approaches that we highlight in the chapter has to do with uh, the role of affect and emotions in the process of mobilization. Um, so this is something our colleague Nermeen has uh, written about quite extensively. Um, so hoping to do this justice. Um, so and there's there's a few different ways that we've highlighted that scholars have really sought to highlight the role of, of emotions in particular in mobilization. The first I think thinks of emotions, feelings, sensations as, as sort of causative in their own right or form, formative in their own right. And so part of thinking about this has been, for example, uh, Nermeen's own work on the kind of emotional states that people might experience when they are participating in mobilization, right? And the kind of narratives that that produces in terms of how people are understanding their own participation and the movements at a later date. Right. And that, of course, is something that has really interesting implications for the way in which we use, you know, things like tools like interviews or memoirs for the study of mobilization. That's something that Nermeen has unpacked quite a bit um, in her book, right, how stories about protesting come to be told and how that connects with the role of emotions. Uh, and then another framework um, has sort of thought about emotions as, as sort of forming a linkage between sort of structural or background grievance factors, right? These kinds of 
structures of repression, oppression, global neoliberalism, marginalization, right? And, and, and the sort of indignation that people may feel or the range of emotions that people may feel in response to structural injustice as sort of forming that linkage between structure and agency, right? Or between, you know, background conditions and the sort of activities that people might take up um, to challenge them, right? And so I think in sort of placing emotions at different sort of phases in the sequencing of mobilization or sort of using the, the, the sort of leverage of emotions to get at different parts of the process, this is this is like really, I think, a forward thinking part of, of our literature. And I should mention like also connects with an impetus in the broader social movements or contentious politics um, literature that's kind of militating in the same way, right? So we have work by James Jasper, for example, trying to come up with ways of typologizing uh, emotionality when it comes to mobilization. Right. And these are conversations that can sometimes sort of sit uncomfortably with some of the methodological individualism or sort of rational choice perspective that tend to permeate some of the, you know, older thinking about collective action and what it means to act collectively, right, from a position of, of self-interest or community interest. And I think a lot of folks who are, you know, Wendy Perlman, for example, is kind of on the forefront of sort of thinking through how do we sort of not not isolate sort of emotions and feelings and experiences, right, but kind of incorporate those into, you know, some of the longer running conversations about, about you know, behavior, right, and why people act uh, the way that they do. I think that's really valuable. Great, thank you. So uh, thank you, Achillian and Chantal, for joining us uh, to talk about this chapter on protests in uh, the Middle East. And um, thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. It's Thanks a pleasure so much, to be here. Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined by Jeannie Sowers, University of New Hampshire, author of the book Environmental Politics in Egypt, Activists, Experts, and the State. Uh, and we're here to talk about the COP27, the, uh, the Sharm el-Sheikh Climate Change Conference that's scheduled to begin November 6th uh, in Egypt. Um, Jeannie, thanks for joining us. You've been working on this for a very long time. Uh, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about what does it mean that the COP27 is happening in Egypt? Great, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on this podcast. Um, so as you know, Egypt is at the center of a whole host of debates about climate change. It's positioning itself as a leader for articulating demands about climate adaptation and loss and damage on behalf of other Arab countries and other African countries. And at the same time, as you know, there's been a lot of controversy given the lack of space and civic space for protest and contestation within Egypt. So we, we have a sort of focus on Egypt as both the country in which climate impacts are very severe, they're very evident, they threaten a lot of people in a lot of places. And in that sense, Egypt is seen as a good place to host the COP. Um, it also has the competency and the sort of ability to host a large scale conference, uh, which is important as well. And at the same time, a lot of people inside and outside the country are concerned that Egypt is greenwashing its image. Uh, and we can talk further about that. So how would you describe in general Egypt's approach to dealing with climate issues, environmental issues? Is there anything that's, that's characteristic about the way it approaches them? That's a really great question. I think Egypt is much more interlinked in with sort of regional and international negotiations over things like water, over things like food security. And I think it has, it's always had, and for many decades, highly competent technical cadres of people 
who actually understand these issues quite deeply. The frustration, I think, for many civil servants and scientists in Egypt has long been that they're actually not listened to. And, and so in that sense, they're quite similar to public servants elsewhere. Uh, so Egypt has capacity and knowledge and expertise that can be mobilized on climate issues. And many of the reasons that it's not is the same issues that other countries face. They face entrenched business interests. They face crony capitalist networks or state in the state, in this, uh, in this instance, hybrid public private networks. Uh, that often commandeer projects. Um, there's well entrenched uh, sort of ways in which the military, the public sector and private sector firms uh, choose which projects to do for climate. And so I think the characteristic underlying political economy of Egypt uh, applied to climate uh, will look quite similar to other types of state projects that have been undertaken and will have both the sort of same advantages and benefits and the same disadvantages. Now, there's a long history of, of activism and NGO work and civil society engagement on environmental issues in Egypt. Tell us a little bit about that trajectory and where that kind of fits within what you're describing. Okay, that's great. So I think um, civil society in Egypt is very diverse, right? And takes many different forms. It doesn't speak with a uniform or monolithic voice. And I think that that has been showing in the last uh, sort of six months to a year since it was announced that Egypt would host the conference of the parties uh, um, conference in uh, November. So the longer history of sort of activism is that it's never been just about the environment. So it's always about local conditions. It's about, and it's always overlapped with issues of public health, issues of inadequate pay, inadequate working conditions and poverty. And they have often not been explicitly just environmental. And what's new in the last say 10 to 15 years is that we've had explicitly environmental organizations coming out. And this was happening to some extent before the 2011 uprising, but those brief period of years where there was open space in Egypt, there was a, a extraordinary flowering, flowering of civil society around environmental issues. More recently, what Egyptian civil society activists who are focused primarily on climate, which is really the minority of those organizations uh, is reporting is that there has been more space allowed to them in recent months uh, in order in part to burnish the Egyptian government's image, but also because they are actually the people who know something about climate. Um, so there's a temporary, possibly temporary space um, for this kind of engagement around the COP. Now, I mean, what you're getting at here is something that for people who are not specialists in the environment, but who follow Egyptian politics, is just the, you know, the, the problem of holding a conference like this in a state which holds tens of thousands of political prisoners, is fiercely repressive of even the mildest form of protest. Um, and and that, that for, for global civil society, I think this has been a, kind of a big dilemma. You want to be part of these big international conferences, but you don't want to legitimate this regime or put yourself at risk. I think you're exactly right. And I think in that sense, organizations that choose to attend this COP uh, actually have a significant responsibility to highlight those very issues because people inside Egypt cannot. So some organizations will rightly choose not to attend the COP, but many will continue because they feel that these spaces are not going to be any better at the UAE next year, mm -hmm. probably worse. Um, and that the, at the principle of holding the conference of the parties is not actually subject to regime type. 
But that then I think increases responsibilities for actual civil society actors who are coming in from the outside to pay attention to what's going on to Egypt and to use their voices to, to amplify those concerns. And I wanna just raise in this context that the choice of Sharm el-Sheikh is also very interesting, right? It's clearly done for security purposes and because it's a nice place and because Egypt can kind of make the city look good in a short amount of time and install some solar panels and electric charging stations and all that kind of stuff. But it's also in the context of Sinai, where, as you know, the, the military has been fighting an ongoing insurgency with a, an ISIS-affiliated um, group. And in doing so, particularly early on in 2014 and 2015, it used scorched earth tactics that were actually quite repressive in terms of demolishing residential homes and really not differentiating between the local population and suspected militants. I think they have learned that to some extent, but also uh, the ISIS affiliate, of course, it was so barbaric and so um, vicious in its own conduct with the local population that that the local populations have started to um, turn against it. So the, the issues of marginalization and who is vulnerable to both climate change and political repression, I think really need to be at the forefront of those who choose to engage in this cup. Now, I wanna go back to this flowering of Egyptian civil society around environmental issues that you described. And what, what do you think most explains that? Is it the actual effects of climate change or is it just part of the global zeitgeist um, where young people take climate more seriously? What do you think was really going on there when you saw this growing interest in environmental activism? And well, earlier in 2011, it was definitely part of a sort of the youth movement as a political category and a social actor uh, that they take very seriously environmental issues. Um, certainly these days, that is the same. It's, it's, it's youth are no longer, they're not just teenagers, right? They're the right. sort of 20 and 30 year old professionals as well. And they take very seriously, I think, environmental issues. I also think that um, global discourses about climate change have filtered down into local media, but this is also kind of a problem. And, and I heard one webinar in which one local Egyptian environmental activist said, we don't have a local narrative about climate change. And I think this is a really important point because I think as long as climate change is seen as something that's either imposed from the outside or is only about you know, mitigating and, and decarbonization and green energy, that doesn't actually speak to people's concerns. And so I think the environmental activists in Egypt struggle in a way about how to connect what people experience in their everyday life to this climate crisis. And in that sense, I think they face the same problem as climate activists actually anywhere. Right, convincing people that this is a, something of that needs attention. And I think for Egypt, the focus really does need, and I've been saying this for a long time, on adaptation. So Egypt just doesn't contribute that much to global emissions. And so it is rightfully in some ways calling for financing and prioritizing adaptation. My concern with relying just on climate finance as a mechanism to address the impacts of climate change is that many of the projects that we've seen in Egypt have not always been successful precisely because of the reasons that we're talking about earlier, whether it's uh, lack of consultation, centralization, corruption, however you want to describe this. Um, and also the way that development is understood is still very technocratic, very centralized, uh, very much based on grand projects that are, are useful to bolstering an, an image, but are not necessarily addressing the local needs of communities that are most impacted by climate change. Now, Egypt, of course, is embedded within regional and global alliances. And, uh, and the, the kinds of projects you're describing of course, these are things which are popular in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and, and other Gulf states, these kinds of top-down, technology-centric 
um, types of approaches. Um, but of course, Egypt has a very different context in terms of its population, in terms of uh, its its food security needs and the like. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the effects of these regional discourses and practices on Egypt and the way that it does or doesn't, uh, uh, you know, engage on these things? Yeah, and I think um, I think it's a very complicated picture because I think you're absolutely right. In one hand, there's regional flows of ideas and capital that do focus on these very large scale projects, like the new administrative capital or large scale land uh, or, um, land reclamation schemes. But on the other hand, there are many, many, many organizations, charities, foundations, both international and local, that have worked in Egypt for decades, and they do mostly community development. Um, they do. Mo they focus on things like micro lending and sort of bottom up work. So it's we can't really just characterize it as one or the other. It's actually quite diverse and it's a very big country with a very large population. And so there's many modes, if you like, of doing development or environment work. And so I think the question is for donors and for participants, civil society participants, is to really talk about accountability, transparency and effectiveness of the things that they undertake. And I think that's where the civic restrictions on freedom have negatively impacted development, not just recently, but for decades. Because if you can't openly and transparently discuss the shortcomings of your projects or the cost overruns or why you're not doing what you think you should be doing, you're really not going to be successful. And this is the challenge for adaptation, I think, in Egypt, among others. Now, when we talk about adaptation, I mean, obviously, there's a there's a huge range of environmental issues in Egypt uh, and soil and, and water and pollution and all these things. But for climate change specifically, what are the major ways that climate change impacts uh, Egyptians? Yeah, that's a great question. So one is just global warming is just that, right? It's actually warming the planet. So heat waves, intense heat waves that actually have high rates of mortality. We've seen them in Europe, we've seen them in Russia, we've seen them in the US. Well, they're also happening across the Middle East and North Africa, and they're happening in Egypt. And particularly when much of the population cannot afford air conditioning or to work in comfortable circumstances or to sleep in that it has direct effects on health and increases mortality. It also increases a range of um, diseases, actually communicable diseases, particularly when those are passed through vectors that spread even more with climate change, such as mosquitoes and West Nile virus. Um, the other impacts, of course, are, are related to agriculture. So, so basically, Egyptian agriculture is suffering from higher temperatures, higher salinity, a whole host of climate-related impacts. And then urban areas are sort of an understudied um, and a sort of underprioritized area in the sense, not just the heat island effects that are much more intense and the lack of green space and the sort of things that Kyrenes and Alexandrians and everyone else usually live with, but also to the extent that we're, we have more intense sandstorms. We actually have that compounds terrible problems of urban air quality. So I think the basic um, things that people want to enjoy in their daily life um, are actually negatively impacted by climate change, even though those causal chains are not evident unless you're a climate specialist. And of course, even though this is being held in Egypt, it's not about Egypt per se. And so, right, I mean, we, you know, we published the collection of, uh, of papers about environmental issues in the Middle East a, a little while back. And um, some of the work there that really struck me the most was on the Gulf and Iraq and just on the, the intensity of the kinds of things that you just described uh, in terms of the temperatures and, uh, and the rest. 
Um, do you see anything, you know, kind of around the COP that looks like a meaningful approach um, from that that could actually engage with the, you know, the salience and the intensity of these trends in those particular regions? That's a great question. You know, it's hard to say since the COP hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think that they, there is um, work by Egyptian civil society organizations working on environmental issues to actually put together sort of a common list of demands and positions uh, about local conditions in the region. I think there has been a lot of work starting to be done on trying to articulate those kinds of needs. But I'm quite pessimistic uh, in the sense that climate impacts are intensifying and they're much more quickly um, accelerating than anyone anticipated. And so to that extent, adaptation, if you like, is, is kind of, um, it's what we have to do now because we didn't solve it earlier and it's only going to get worse. And I think that Egypt has an advantage in the, in the fact that it is relatively middle income. The people are not, but the country as a whole is. Um, but we know that more Egyptians are going hungry. We know that more people across the Arab world are actually basically at or below uh, sort of lowering poverty levels. So more and more people are actually put in more and more dire circumstances as a result of not just climate, but natural disasters plus political disasters. So I think that um, in terms of, are we gonna see anything soon that actually helps these problems concretely? Not necessarily. But I think the solutions, like many solutions to environmental problems are often are known but the political will and the corporate commitment is often not there. Um, so to give an example, most of the attention in Egypt often goes to large scale projects like the largest solar farm or commitments to green hydrogen. But actually you could deploy solar hot water on a rapid, you know, sort of for villages and lower communities. Um, I mean, I mean other communities quite quickly. Um, and that would improve air quality and would have other sort of benefits. So I think there's a lot of local level solutions that simply um, are not prioritized, but could be. But in terms of many impacts are, you know, it's it's too late and we have to now, we, we, we need to deal with problems of internal migration and external migration. It's pretty, it's pretty wild to see uh, uh, bike lanes in central Cairo, but probably not enough. <laughs> probably not enough. All right. Thank you, Jeannie. And uh, we'll be following uh, the COP and these environmental issues for years to come. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.